We're looking at a really kind of the worst case scenario right now. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Welcome to America Explained. This is an extra episode that I'm bringing you to talk about the situation in Ukraine right now. I don't really want to call it a bonus episode. Maybe we can go with emergency episode. I wanted to get something out really quickly just to talk about what's happening on day one of this crisis. I'm not recording this in my usual studio setup, so the audio quality is worse than normal. But I just want to get something out there quickly, and I'm probably going to do a series of these episodes in the coming weeks in in these similar uh, circumstances. Russia, as you've already seen on the news, has begun its attack on Ukraine with with a really, really large amount of military force. So there's been reports of missile strikes on Ukrainian cities and military facilities right from the east of the country or right to the west of the country near the Polish border. There have been amphibious landings out of the Sea of Azov onto Ukrainian territory and tank columns have been reported crossing the border from Belarus and from Crimea. Hundreds of Ukrainians are already dead. Ominously, there have been reports of Russia launching unguided missiles into populated areas, into cities. This is something that Russia's done in previous conflicts like Chechnya. They have a vast array of unguided, dumb weapons that they just drop on populated areas. This is also what the Russian Air Force did in Syria, where they just basically dropped gravity bombs on cities. They don't use guided weapons. So we're looking at a really kind of the worst case scenario right now. The fog of war makes it hard to know exactly what's going on, but it looks like Russia is heading for its maximalist option, the the worst case scenario here, which is heading for Kiev. And we haven't seen this type of warfare for a really, really long time, or at least in the West, we've not focused on it. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were fundamentally very, very different to what is happening right now. What we're seeing here is two highly mechanized, technologically sophisticated militaries with a lot of firepower going at each other, and it is not going to be pretty. Thousands of people are going to die today, and who knows how many more in the weeks and months to come. Vladimir Putin gave a speech saying that the goal of this operation is regime change to impose a new government on Kiev and quote-unquote bring to justice the leaders of the current Kiev government who he portrays as been western stooges ruling over a, uh, a population that doesn't want them. He claims that the Ukrainian people yearn for this intervention from Russia. Now that is just simply not true. We don't know if he believes that it's true or if this is just something that he says, but if he does believe that it's true, he is in for a shock because the Ukrainian people are not going to greet the Russians as liberators. They're going to fight back. Putin says that he doesn't intend a lengthy occupation of Ukraine. This seems an impossible thing to say. It seems a contradiction with his goal of regime change because there is just no way that a pro-Russian government is going to be kept in power in Kiev without a lengthy occupation. So I would say that we are heading towards a protracted conflict in Ukraine, which is going to see Russian forces stay in that country for a long time to come. 
this is a horrible, horrible day for Ukrainians. It's a horrible day for the people who are suffering in Ukraine right now. You know, as I sent my daughter off to daycare this morning, I just held her extra tight because I knew that near here, there are so many families who are not going to make it through today. And it's a horrible, horrible day for Ukraine and a horrible day for Europe. I also, though, I, I, I want in this episode to talk about a few other things that are worrying me right now, a few other things that we should be focused on, particularly to do with the risks of this conflict spilling over into a wider conflict between NATO and, and Russia. And this is something that we have to focus on because the consequences of that would be so incredibly grave. The, you know, these are two, well, one alliance, one country with enormous nuclear destructive capacity. And they are coming closer to direct conflicts with one another than they have for a very, very long time, arguably for much of the Cold War. You know, going, you can go back maybe to the Cuban Missile Crisis, to the Berlin Blockade, but I struggle to think since then of times when there's been so much risk of escalation between these two sides into a nuclear conflict. And I want to talk a little bit about these potential sources of escalation and just the things that I'm worried about right now and that, that we need to keep our eyes on going forward in this conflict as it stretches over the days and the weeks and the months. So the first is the risk of direct clashes between NATO and Russia, which would undoubtedly be inadvertent. Neither of these sides wants to have a conflict with one another. You know, the U.S. has made clear that it is not going to send troops to Ukraine. It has no intention of militarily defending Ukraine. There's a consensus on this across the foreign policy community in the U.S., except for, you know, a couple of cranks on the margins who have talked about, for instance, a no-fly zone over Ukraine that was imposed by NATO or of actually sending American forces to Ukraine. But this is just is not going to happen. The U.S. has made that very clear. And on his side, Putin has warned of, quote, consequences greater than any of you have faced in history if any outside power interferes with its military operations in Ukraine. This is a clear warning about the use of nuclear weapons if NATO were to interfere with this Russian military operation. And again, you know, I, I don't know the last time. I'm not sure there's ever been a time when such a warning has been issued over such a contentious issue where there's actually a chance that, that things could get this bad, even if it's still a, a relatively small chance, because even though nobody wants this escalation to the nuclear weapon, accidents can still happen. You know, there are going to be Russian planes flying over Ukraine, hitting targets in, in Ukraine near to the airspace of NATO countries. Things can happen, such as, for instance, what if the pilot of a Russian jet inadvertently crosses into the airspace of Poland and then NATO planes come to harry and escort him out of Polish airspace and he attacks them because he's stressed and he doesn't know what's going on and he thinks he's been attacked. There's the risk of naval clashes inadvertently happening in the Black Sea, which is currently overflowing with both Russian and NATO military vessels. There's the risk that, I mean, what if Ukrainian military units in the west of the country are fleeing the Russian military and they seek shelter in a NATO country, or perhaps even attack Russian military assets from within a NATO country? This is the sort of thing that NATO doesn't want to happen. Nobody would want this to happen because of 
the risk of escalation, but in the fog of war, things can go wrong. I've given just a few examples here, some more outlandish than others, but there's there's also, I think it's important to say, just many ways that it's not even possible for us to think about that this might go wrong. When you have a conflict like this happening so close to the territory of NATO countries, with so many NATO military assets just swarming also, around the western part of Ukraine, around um, the, the Mediterranean and the Black Sea, there's this just, just there's always the risk of this happening and there's the risk of things getting out of hand. The second thing that I worry about is where is this conflict going over the long run? So Putin has said that he doesn't want a lengthy occupation of Ukraine, but we know from our experience in Iraq and Afghanistan that this never, it just never ever works out. The idea that you can just waltz into a country, impose regime change, and then leave again is just not realistic. It doesn't work that way. When the West went into Iraq and Afghanistan, they didn't intend for a lengthy occupation either. Nobody thought that the US was going to be in Afghanistan for 20 years after that initial invasion in 2001, but it happened. Because once you've already sunk so many costs into this kind of operation and this kind of mission, then there's always the temptation just to do a little bit more and keep going and keep going because you believe that victory will be just around the corner if you put more resources and more effort into it. And I have absolutely no doubt that the Russians, if they are committed to this goal, then they're going to get drawn into the same type of dynamic. They're going to end up staying in Ukraine trying to prop up this puppet government that they will install in the country and trying to make the Ukrainian people accept the rule of that government. And what makes this situation particularly dangerous is that NATO countries have said that in this case, they will arm an insurgency. So they have said that they will actually give weapons and training and, you know, who else, who knows what else type of, of support to a Ukrainian insurgency, which is fighting against this Russian-backed government and fighting against the Russian military. Again, this is a very, very risky situation that can lead to conflict between NATO and Russia. If you have, I mean, as, as a result of, of this conflict, there's going to be probably a huge Ukrainian refugee community in Poland. People in that Ukrainian refugee community are going to want to support the war against Russia in their homeland. Why, you know, why wouldn't they? Of course they're going to want to do that. They want to undo this monstrous act of international aggression. But that puts NATO countries in a very, very tricky situation because if you have bands of guerrillas crossing the border from, you know, let's say Poland or somewhere else into Ukraine, killing Russian soldiers and then coming back into a NATO country, that can be seen as a as a cause for war by Russia. It, even if not directly, again, it can lead to accidents that happen. Russia might attempt to attack those guerrillas as they cross the border, and then they might accidentally strike within Poland. They might accidentally kill NATO personnel. So we, we're, we have to start thinking right now about how we are going to handle this long-term situation where, of course, we want to undo the Russian conquest of Ukraine. We want to make them pay for the conquest of Ukraine and, and for the crimes that they're committing there. But we also, at the same time, want to do that in a way that's not going to lead to broader escalation and lead to a potential general war between NATO and Russia, which, again, can become nuclear. The third thing that we need to think about right now 
is what's going to happen in the non-military realm between Russia and the EU and the US. The West is imposing really big sanctions on Russia right now. I think that if this lengthy occupation that I'm predicting happens, then you're only going to see those sanctions get worse and worse over the course of this year, particularly coming from the US. In a couple of months, we're going to be in the midterm campaign system in the United States. Congress has the power to impose sanctions. So under the American system, the president can impose sanctions. Also, Congress can impose sanctions, although it is possible for the president to, to veto that. And then Congress has to come back with a two-thirds majority to actually get it even past a presidential veto. But as we head into those midterm campaigns, Congress is going to push, I think, for tougher and tougher sanctions on Russia, both because many, many members of Congress will believe that it's the right thing to do, but also because they're going to believe that it's smart politics as well. So we, at the moment, sanctions on Russian energy are off the table. Other types of sanctions, such as blocking Russia's access to the SWIFT international banking system, are off the table. But as the year goes on, I'm not sure that we can be 100% sure that anything is going to be left off the table. So Western sanctions are only going to get worse as the year goes on. Russia's going to respond by imposing sanctions on Western countries. But we also have to be aware of the possibility that Russia's going to respond through other means through manipulating energy markets in a way that tries to drive European energy prices really, really high. You know, you can well think that Moscow might do this in an attempt to try to peel European members of NATO away from America and away from a more hardline position by putting pressure on the energy supplies and giving them a reason to want to compromise and, and take a softer line and, you know, accept it to some extent what Russia has done, or at least not to increase sanctions enormously. There's also, though, the chance that Russia might respond through other means, such as cyber attack, all forms of damaging espionage activity in European countries. You know, this can also escalate. So if if the sanctions on Russia eventually become so bad that Russia feels that they're really, really absolutely crushing the Russian economy, you know, threatening in some sense the continued existence of the Russian economy, then they will have reasons to try to escalate and impose pain on the West to get rid of those sanctions. Again, this can escalate and go really badly wrong, especially if Russia miscalculates and believes that it can carry out some of these actions, things like cyber attacks, things like the interference in energy markets, and make European countries back down, when in fact the European countries have no intention of backing down. So, you know, you can easily get locked in this cycle where each side is imposing harsher and harsher costs and penalties on the other, in the belief that the other will eventually back down, but instead you get locked in this escalation spiral that can lead somewhere really, really nasty. One of the big questions that I don't see discussed so much, but that I'm still waiting to find out the answer to is, are, is Russia going to respect this red line that's drawn around NATO or not? Or are they, are they going to seek to put pressure on NATO countries through certain means in an attempt to try to peel European countries away from the rest of NATO, away from America particularly, and seek some sort of compromise. And I really worry that this could go really badly wrong, especially if Russia thinks that it can use things like cyber attacks in Western countries to intimidate them and to cause them to back down and, and kind of step back from the brink. So, 
These are just some of the things that I'm thinking about right now. I, I know that this probably didn't make anyone feel better about the current situation. I'm just trying to draw out some of the things that are going on behind the headlines right now. If you found it useful, please tell a friend about America Explained and check in back in a day or so when I'll re release another bonus episode and I'll update you again on what's going on in the conflict. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time. <laughs>